Before we begin today's show, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Posh Virtual Receptionists and the American Bar Association Insurance Program. Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, the ABA Journal's Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Justin Jacobson. He's the author of The Essential Guide to the Business and Law of Esports and Professional Video Gaming. Justin, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So we know that so much of the American public plays a video game of some kind, whether that's on your phone, whether you actually have a gaming system, uh, it really runs the gamut. But we're here to talk about professional esports. Uh, I think there are going to be many listeners who aren't quite sure what that means. Could you give us a little bit of an overview? Yeah, so, you know, esports is kind of, you know, the world of professional video gaming. So this is where individuals or teams compete against others in a specific video game title for sometimes substantial, you know, prize money. So there's games like Fortnite, Call of Duty, Halo, League of Legends, Madden or NBA 2K. And, you know, some of these prize pools are for millions of dollars. So, Justin, who are you writing this book for? Who are you hoping to reach? Well, yeah, I really kind of wanted to make the book applicable to, you know, all ages, not necessarily just for lawyers or law students. So whether you're, you know, a, co- a college student or business practitioner or a high school student or, you know, an attorney or any other kind of professional or manager or someone starting a team could really use this and it could be a guide for them to do it right. Because ultimately, I don't want something that was just, you know, too legalese or too, you know, written just for lawyers because I feel like there's a place for that. And, you know, one of these days, maybe there'll be an esports law textbook from me. But, you know, I wanted something that could act as a more digestible, you know, body of information. And as someone who read the book, I can assure you there is a fabulous index and plenty of footnotes if that's what you're in it for. But I did think that it was written in an approachable style. I think that if you were an esport athlete, you could pick this up and get some tips too on, oh, this is. This is what I should be asking my my people about. Definitely. So that's definitely kind of the intent of it is for, you know, exactly. If you're a pro esports player, you'd be like, oh, well, you're negotiating my contract. Did you look at this? And I guarantee you some of them might be like, oh, good point. <laughs> so this is big business, even if you personally may not have heard about it. Uh, but let's talk about you. How would you get into this area of the law? Well, yeah, I started as a more of a traditional entertainment and sports attorney working with musicians and DJs and pro athletes and just kind of handling all of their you know, legal and business matters. And I've always been a lifelong gamer, you know, as you mentioned, always been PlayStation and Xbox and had a Game Boy. So it was always kind of part of, you know, my leisure. And about six years ago, I kind of noticed what was going on in the esports world and a lot of related legal matters, especially from the more traditional talent side of the entertainment business that I was in. So I was able to kind of start and bridge over and start working with different pro gamers and streamers and coaches and on-air talent and just helping them with their player contracts and sponsorship deals and really just starting to build from there. And since then, I've been working with some of the top players, with many of the different top teams and leagues across the world. So a lot of people are looking to find their own niche in law practice, and this seems to have been a great one for you, that it... it matches your personal interests, your previous professional experience. So you have a pretty good setup. Why would you write a book that potentially gives other people a guide into this industry? 
Well, in addition to, you know, practicing attorney, I actually um, teach, you know, I'm an adjunct professor at a few different universities. So academia has always been kind of part of, you know, who I am and kind of my pedigree. So I kind of felt there was a huge knowledge void, especially kind of what was out there and published. And I kind of felt like this was the kind of material that I would have loved to have when I was starting, where, you know, someone who's doing this kind of work at a really high level in all avenues of it is able to kind of give you a little insight and information that's not really out there. And, you know, a lot of the more entertainment, sports, fashion worlds, there are these books that give you an idea of the music law, the music business, what record contracts look like, music publishing deals, merchandise, all of these kind of standard talent agreements. But there was nothing like that for the professional esports and gaming scene. So I kind of was able to take this knowledge that I've gained and, you know, being an academic, be able to kind of present it in a way that was needed because you have to educate the next generation of whether it's attorneys, you know, businessmen, entrepreneurs, or accountants, or anyone else that's trying to get into this field and learn how to do it the right way. And what are some of the biggest misconceptions you see people having when you're talking to either students or just out in the world explaining to people what you do? I mean, I think people are just like, oh, it's like, you know, people watching video games, like who's interested in that? Like, it's so much more than that. And to be honest with you, hundreds of millions of kids across the world are interested in that. You know, they're watching Twitch and YouTube literally all day nonstop. And it's just kind of like the people that kind of have that attitude aren't really immersed in it. But all they have to do is look at what their grandchildren, you know, what's going on with their phone and what they're watching on their tablet. And they would really see that, as you mentioned, everyone is gaming in some form and, you know, there's gaming with your friends. But then as you start to see that you're you know, really skilled and you have a passion for it, you start, you know, wanting to compete against the best and, you know, to entice it, you know, there's prize pools and it grows as you go up the levels. And it's just a really exciting new avenue that has a lot more going on than most people would imagine. You know, there's doctors and physicians who are using sports medicine to apply to esports professionals for performance and just all of these mental coaches. So it's like really mirroring the more traditional sports world than it is, you know, not at this point. And I'll admit, I would have been one of those people a couple of years back who are were, you know, looking at my godchildren and saying, oh, why do you want to watch a YouTube video of someone else playing a video game? And uh, I'll shout out to my sister who said, well, I watch Top Chef and I don't get to eat the food. Uh, but, you know, you might as well ask someone, oh, why are you watching this NBA game instead of going out and throwing the basketball at the hoop outside your house? You know, there are levels you can enjoy playing a video game, but I think most people don't understand the level of professionalism that many of these esports athletes have, or they may think, athlete, what? But when you look at the kind of reaction time that these people have, I mean, it's closer to driving a race car in needing to be, you know, at the top of your game physically. And, you know, you're talking about how sports medicine doctors are getting involved. And it's, it's definitely not what I had in my mind uh, several years ago. Yeah, I mean, it was really huge and always has been in, you know, Asia, especially in South Korea, where back in like, you know, 1998, it was like the explosion of StarCraft. So like, there was a lot of murmurs of it, but it wasn't until the last few years that North America and you know, U.S. really kind of caught up to it, that, you know, it was like, it's always been huge in China and South Korea and Japan, like, 
but it's only recently started to come larger in Europe and North America. So it's starting to be interesting how that's been developing. That, as you said, maybe 10 years ago, it wasn't even a thought. But in the last three years, I don't think anyone could not hear the word esports or Twitch or gaming and, you know, not be like, oh, yeah, I know what's going on. So you identify four main components of the esports business ecosystem. Can you break that down for my listeners? You know, who are the potential clients in this in this area, in this ecosystem? So yeah, so I kind of identify the four major stakeholders that kind of work with each other. So we have the gaming talent, who's the pro gamers, there's the competitors, and you have the streamers and content creators who, you know, might be on TikTok or YouTube or Twitch and might not necessarily be competing at a professional level in tournaments or organized leagues, but are still professional gamers is, you know, that their profession is that they play video games and make, you know, millions of dollars doing it. And then you have coaches who actually coach players and then on-air talent called casters, which are similar to the sports broadcasters, the, the individuals that kind of provide the commentary and the play-by-play for what's going on in the different tournaments and events and kind of adds the same atmosphere and knowledge that you would look at a traditional NFL or NBA broadcaster. I'll admit, uh, your book was the first time I ran into the term shoutcaster, and I love it. And apparently this is, even in at least one university, being taught uh, as a offshoot of, you know, wanting to become a professional broadcaster. Definitely, because, you know, as you mentioned, it's kind of like you're shouting with excitement and it's just, you know, more of this traditional color commentary, like, oh, that was an amazing kill. And like, you know, the person that go gets a little bit really more intense and it's just kind of like they're shouting on the mic. Love it. So we've got the gaming talent. Then we've got the teams and orgs. Yeah, so those are actually, you know, the ones you've heard of probably FaZe Clan or 100 Thieves or Team Liquid, and they actually sign players and content creators to compete on behalf of them. So, you know, the same way the New York Yankees or the Washington, you know, Capitals will sign players to compete on behalf of them, these teams will compete to sign players to compete on behalf of them and to wear their team jerseys and logos and to represent their sponsors and to do branded activations and to sell their team merchandise and, you know, kind of essentially, you know, be players for these teams. And then there's the event organizers. And that's a piece that I hadn't really thought about. But yeah, these are these are huge events. And what's kind of interesting about the whole esports business world and why, you know, it's different from traditional sports is nobody owns basketball. The idea of like anyone could start a football league, you have the XFL, the, you know, the CFL, the Arena Football League, and, you know, the USFL and all these different football leagues. They're in esports, the developer or the game publisher, who's the fourth, you know, party in this ecosystem, they own the IP or the, you know, the copyright to the game that everyone's playing. So because they own the copyright or the intellectual property in the game, they control how everyone else can use it. So they have the ability to license it or to handle the organizations and the events on themselves. So that's kind of where this you know other party comes into it as the event organizer is some game developers may not want to spend the resources or time or maybe aren't equipped to host an event, especially some of the large-scale ones that we see at you know large arenas and stadiums. So they kind of have these companies whose job it is is to kind of host an event the same way Live Nation would host a huge concert. They would host you know a big esports tournament or league. So it's just a really whole different you know ecosystem all based on you know this legal principle and rights in the game. And so you have those four stakeholders. And I'll admit coming into the book, 
I thought, oh, the business in law of esports. And I did think about contract law. I'm like, oh, there must be a lot of contracts. And uh, if anything, I was underestimating the amount that contract law does impact this area. But I wasn't thinking about the intellectual property law or the tax law implications, immigration and employment law. And you cover all of this in the book. Um, but let's dig a little deeper into intellectual property law. You already mentioned, you're like, you know, no one owns basketball. But if I want to put on an event and I specifically want, say, Fortnite, I can't just, you know, decide to hold it. There's so much that goes into it. So could you talk a little bit about the various kinds of issues that you see arising with intellectual property law and esports? Well, yeah, as you mentioned, you know, because Fortnite, which is owned by Epic Games, a game developer, they hold the rights for any commercial use of their game. A lot of developers have carved out these community law exemptions where, you know, if you have an event that's earning a certain prize pool or if there's no sponsors or if it's, you know, a local nonprofit charity thing, they kind of give you this limited public license that you could host a tournament without it. But once you start kind of going out of these guidelines and all the different publishers have their different rates and what they consider exempt, you have to actually get a license from the game developer. So if you want to do Overwatch, you'd have to go to Activision Blizzard, or same with Call of Duty, or if you wanted League of Legends, you'd have to get a license from Riot Games, which means if you're trying to throw you know, a large event, you would have to potentially spend a substantial amount on this licensing fee to be able to operate this event. And these events then have the ability to license the gameplay on live streaming platforms such as Twitch or YouTube, as well as on television, as you know, we've seen NBC Sports and ESPN and ABC and a bunch of different TV stations in the U.S. and in different countries that are actually televising gameplay. So there's a lot of different agreements and licenses of you know the IP, which is the gameplay of the game. And it's just kind of, as you mentioned, a lot of it is all based on contract law, which is these different licenses, agreements between all of the different players in this ecosystem. One thing that must be complicated if you are the lawyer for one of these players who's the gaming talent, and let's say that they're they're competing, they're making a name for themselves, they are gathering followers on Twitch, and they're being approached by a variety of brands asking this player to endorse their brand, to you know, maybe signs a special deal with them. And a lot of these players are really young and probably haven't studied contract law uh, themselves. And they can get into really tight spots, not only with sponsorships, but also signing contracts with teams. What are some major pitfalls that you see when you're working with these, these younger players trying to get into the scene? I mean, I think the biggest thing is what you mentioned is that they don't realize that they don't have the knowledge to actually do the deal on their own, especially as it, you know, intensifies in value or length. Because, yeah, you could do a two-page agreement that only is a one-off thing. That's probably not going to impact you long-term. But if you're going to sign a, a long-term agreement that has non-compete and multiple years and all these different deliverables, it's one of these things where there are people who trained and this is what they do. And they understand what you need to do and what you can ask for. And I think that's the biggest thing about people that specialize in these entertainment kind of fields 
is that they understand what's normal, what other brands are doing, and how you're able to maybe get something that maybe the brand isn't offering. But if everyone else is offering it, you might have the leverage to be able to ask for it. So I think one of the biggest misconceptions is not realizing that they do need help and that there are people who can provide this value. And, you know, other than that, it's looking at certain portions of the agreement, whether it's a buyout clause, which a lot of these player contracts sometimes have really high buyouts, which might be prohibitive as you go forward in your career. And some of them also, depending on if you're starting or on the bench, really reduce your salary, which could be a huge shock if, you know, one month you're starting, you're making thousands of dollars, and the next month you're making half of it or less just because they decided that you didn't play well in the last tournament. So there's just a lot of leeway in how these agreements are decided. And then when we talk about the sponsorship and brand, it's really important to think about the term of the agreement and also kind of these non-compete and how things are after it. Because you might sign an agreement with an energy drink that says, you know, it's a six-month deal, but as a six-month non-compete, which means you can't have a rival energy drink for six months after that ends. So that potentially means you're with someone for a year with before you can get a new one. So I think that understanding that these are certain things that you can negotiate and that they're important because they have a lot more of a long-term impact. Because, yeah, the money, that's usually just negotiation and what you want to feel. But the other stuff that have these long-term impact on how you can go forward and how you can grow in your career, that's usually where the big problems happen. Where you're on a team and it just doesn't work, and all of a sudden they bench you and there's nothing you can do about it, and your buyout is too high, and no team is going to pay it. So effectively, your career is over. And, you know, because there's just so many people that would love to be gamers, and you have the next 16, 17, 18-year-old kid who's, you know, finally becoming of age and can start doing this for real, there's just a constant spin cycle of talent. Whereas with, you know, the NFL and the NBA, there's only so many players in the world, athletes, humans, that have the capability to compete at that level. You know, it's a finite amount. So it's really interesting dynamic to understand that how you position yourself early on could really impact everything going forward. And just to pull out one example you use in the book, because I didn't know this was a thing. And now that I do know it's a thing, it seems like such a good idea. Well, let's say, you know, you're a young person um, entering the industry and you have formed a really good relationship with someone at a particular company or team. And so because they're at that team, you sign with them. And you describe, I think it's called a key man clause. Could you talk a little Mm -hmm. bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, a key man clause is, especially in some of these more talent driven, whether it's a management agreement or even, you know, record label A&R, where as part of the agreement that you're signing with this company, you have a specific individual known as your key man, who is like your point of contact, who if they are, you know, as long as you're a client, whether it's management or agent or you're signed to the label or you're signed to the team, they're who you'll be dealing with. They're the person that you have a rapport with. You have this good relationship. They're almost the reason why you signed with them. And what the key man clause does is it potentially gives the talent or whoever else the ability to kind of terminate the agreement if that key man or individual is no longer employed there. So if there's a management shift and they fire everyone and hire new people, or if he leaves and goes somewhere else, 
because you identified this person and they have to be identified specifically by name. So it has to be, you know, Justin Jacobson is the key man and they have to specifically be mentioned in the contract. It gives you the ability to be like, okay, well, this guy's not here anymore. That's who I came here for. So I'm going to be able to leave. And it gives the ability in these talent driven industries to be more flexible with your career and not to just have to be signed with somewhere that you don't want to be at a certain time where if it's like, you know, my management, the person that has been at my wedding and has known me since the beginning leaves, like that's who I want to be with. That's who I trust. That's who I know has my best interest at heart. And in these talent worlds, that's way more valuable than anything else. And I'm sure that, you know, the biggest athletes in the world, biggest musicians will tell you that the people that are closest to them that are handling these big deals, like, they can just trust them that they have their best interest at heart, that they're doing what's well by them because not only are they legally obligated to do it, they just have these relationships because of the nature of the work that goes beyond just like, Oh, I got injured in an accident. You got me money. Like hopefully I don't have to see you again if I don't get injured again, you know? So it's a lot of these, especially, you know, as you go up the ladder are a lot long-term relationships with the talent where you're really advising them on, what their livelihood is, which is, you know, their talent, music, gaming career. And I would just love to hear from you about what it's like to form these kinds of personal relationships uh, in the industry. You know, often I'm sure you're meeting these people at the very beginning. They, they may be very young. There are a lot of people who are out to exploit the young talent and you're having to defend their interests and and build trust. Is it is it rewarding to work not only with esports um, folks, but you said that you've you know been in the music and entertainment industry, and it does seem like these are some pretty close relationships in many cases. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things I love most is kind of watching that evolution of you know starting out and you know start doing deal, you start helping them, and you know years later it's like wow, you're on this huge stage and all these people are rocking out to your music, and it's just like. This is what we were talking about however many years ago, and now you're living in. And I think that that always is really exciting, especially, you know, to be a part of it and to help guide them there. That's probably, you know, one of the most rewarding parts is that relationship that you have with them, especially people that you kind of can help and you have a long-term relationship. It's not just like, oh, do this one thing for me, and, you know, that's the end of it. So there may be people listening to this now who have children, especially who are very serious about this and interested in getting into the industry. And probably as a parent, they have the same kind of concerns you'd have for, you know, any child who wants to go into a sports league. Uh, You know, what if they get injured, et cetera. Uh, And you have a chapter in your book called The Rise of Global Youth High School and um, College uh, Environments for these sports. Let's say you're talking to a parent, you're advising someone on their child's dream. What are some of the things that you bring up to them to think about, to make sure their kid thinks about, and ways that they can be safeguarding uh, their child's interests? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that what's really nice is, you know, as you mentioned, in addition to the whole professional scene, there's a whole kind of non-professional 
competitive organized gaming world that youth level the same way think about you know little league or soccer there'll be little league of legends where you'll have organized youth leagues the same way now there's high school and middle school esports and esports at the college level you have different colleges competing against each other in you know call of duty or halo the same way they might compete against each other in football or lacrosse or baseball so what's nice about that is as it's kind of building in academia there's a lot of studies that suggest that esports and gaming in general kind of builds careers towards STEM. And STEM are these, you know, really kind of math and science and engineering driven um, skills that esports kind of helps drive the passion for gaming, figuring out how to put together a PC, maybe coding and how a gaming actually operates is kind of some of these ancillary fields related to it. So you have a lot of colleges across the U.S. and across the world, really, in almost every country, I would say, especially in Europe, they're developing, whether it's academic programs or, you know, certificates or majors or minors or graduate level kind of information based on esports and competitive video gaming. And maybe it's from the marketing or sales side or business or, you know, I've talked to some law schools about it. So there's a lot of different interests in kind of developing some of the careers that it's not just being a competitive gamer and, you know, streaming for hours that, you know, you could be a lawyer, you could be a CPA, you can be, you know, wealth management or business advisor for gamers and individuals. So you have schools at all levels of academia starting to develop courses or even just having clubs or competitive teams on their campus and building it as part of their culture. So, it's definitely an area that's really growing and you know a lot of academics believe that most every school is going to have esports and video game as part of their school life in some capacity and I strongly agree with that. And speaking of schools, we're going to take a break to hear a word from our sponsor, but when we return, I'll still be here with Justin Jacobson, author of The Essential Guide to the Business and Law of Esports and Professional Video Gaming, and I'm going to ask him what he thinks law students who want to get into esports should be studying. As a lawyer, ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call when you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting. That's where Posh comes in. We're live virtual receptionists who answer and transfer your calls so you never miss an opportunity. And the Posh app lets you control when your receptionist steps in. So if you can't answer, Posh can. And if you've got it, Posh is just a tap away. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Start your free trial today at Posh.com. The American Bar Association Insurance Program offers members access to more than 20 different insurance and financial product solutions to fit all aspects of your life and career. ABA's insurance program is available only to ABA members, with special benefits and savings not available to the general public. Protect yourself, your family, and your firm with ABA Insurance. Discover real value today at abainsurance.com. Welcome back to this episode of the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, here with Justin Jacobson. And Justin, if we have any law students listening to us, uh, what do you think would be some key areas that they should be looking at studying while they're in law school that are going to help them out if they're wanting to go into esports as a career. 
Well, yeah, I mean, what's nice about, you know, esports law and a lot of these, you know, sports law, music law, fashion law, is that it's kind of an industry where you're having to use a bunch of different laws and a bunch of different legal fields kind of to advise your client because a lot of it's interrelated. And that's kind of what the book tries to kind of explain where you have, you know, IP law, which is definitely, you know, the basis of all of this stuff. So copyrights and trademarks, whether it's a class that's just intellectual property law or, you know, a separate one for copyrights and trademarks. I think just having a full grasp of that and how that can be used is, you know, essential and something based on licensing of IP is always valuable. And then we kind of go to the more contract law driven stuff because all of these licenses and the agreements are all, you know, written contracts. And from there, there's certain classes that are like entertainment law, sports law, you know, some places have video game law or even esports law. So anything that kind of exposes you to how you negotiate talent, how you talk to them, because I think that's the biggest thing that I've learned in my career is that the way you explain and talk to you know, a rapper, a professional athlete or a gamer or a Twitch streamer is totally different than how you might talk to a CEO of a company or, you know, if you're doing criminal law or, you know, if you're doing medical malpractice or, you know, any of these other fields, there's dealing with entertainers and creative people. There's a certain vernacular, a certain way you explain things and a certain way you engage with them that you need to kind of learn from these more industry specific kind of areas. I love that you say that because, you know, I think that so many people, you know, they, they may not realize how targeted the language has to be, but at the same time, you know, they may feel like, oh, but how do I, how do I get that knowledge? And I, I have to imagine it's not just by say watching Entourage. Uh, what are some of the ways that you were able to um, pick up that lingo, make yourself more comfortable in those arenas? Is it honestly just, you know, attending these events and, and hanging out with artists and athletes and, and learning the sorts of things that they're interested in and how to communicate that way? I mean, it's definitely a learning process. I've definitely, you know, it's like you said, being able to understand how you get to them, when you talk to them, and who the right decision makers are in their situation. Because a lot of these entertainment situations, it's not always the rapper or the, you know, the head of the band or, you know, the athlete themselves making these decisions. They might be involved in it, but they might have, you know, a brain trust or someone else, their cousin, their, you know, uncle or aunt, or even their parents who are really who they turn to. So it's being able to understand how you kind of engage with both, where you make it like, yeah, you're the talent, it's your decision, but we're also letting the other people who influence the decisions kind of feel like it's part of them too. And I, I think it's one of those things where you have to learn the vernacular so you can know what you're talking about to the level where you can explain it to you know people that it's probably are very you know definitely legally unsophisticated most of the time it's the first time they're dealing with a lawyer you know i have people that it's like they didn't know the difference between like you know a credit and a debit card so a lot of them aren't that you know financially sophisticated in that realm so it's being able to understand how you can help people from the most basic of like okay we're going to set up a corporate bank account and you need a tax id number and there's a lot more that goes into it and if you don't know this from whether it's working with them, interacting with them, or talking with people that do that, I just don't think it's just something that you can figure out. Mm -hmm. 
Well, talking about a couple of the other areas that you brought up that could be useful to people looking to get into this uh, area, if you enjoyed tax law, now I don't know quite who that might be, but surely you're out there. Uh, there are some tax angles that you bring up that I really hadn't considered. Uh, for example, if you play in one location but live in another how do you account for that on your personal income tax? Things like this. So what are some of the tax um, areas where people can get into trouble? Well, yeah, I mean, I think what you're mentioning and something that's very um, known in the traditional entertainment and sports world is known as this non-resident income tax, or for slang, they call it the jock tax, where, you know, as, say, a baseball player in the Yankees, while you're, you know, playing in New York, you're also going to Los Angeles to play, and to Florida, and to Texas, and to Colorado, and Ohio, and all these different states, and you're earning income there because you're playing a game, and as a result, the state you know, wants a cut, you know, they want to tax the income you earn there. So similar to esports competitors who maybe are living in a certain place, whether it's, you know, their own home or some teams actually set up team houses where they kind of all the players on a team live together and practice together. And then you go and compete in another state or another country, you have to pay income tax there for the same way that an athlete is. And it's one of these things where because everything's becoming so global, that like you might be in Poland one week, Sweden the next week, you know, then back in the U.S. for a tournament and then going somewhere in Asia for a tournament and then coming back and it's just so global. And as we know, you know, most governments are very, you know, focused on getting their, you know, tax or revenue for, you know, justifiable reasons. So because there's so much going on with it and it's just so complicated when you're earning income in so many states and countries that there's just a real need to make sure it's done right and to have people that understand it. So it's definitely an area that's really important because if you don't do things properly and you don't have proper, you know, tax management and, you know, whether it's loan out companies or LLCs to help kind of structure that, you can end up with a very hefty tax bill and, you know, you might have been able to, you know, save yourself or recoup some of it if you had done things properly. So I think that's something that everyone should be aware of, that as these individuals start earning even more money and consistently, there's just going to be a larger need for it. So speaking of the global aspect of esports, uh, I think that you wrote this book mostly in 2019 and then it's coming out in 2020. And at the same time, of course, we have the pandemic. Um, obviously, a lot of sports had to halt altogether in the early days of the pandemic before there were any vaccines um, or reliable testing. What has the pandemic experience been like for esports, though? Because on one hand, I think to myself, oh, maybe there were more opportunities for esports athletes to still compete. But on the other hand, a lot of the money in this is from the live events where there are in-person aspects to it. So I just have to ask you, how's the how's the industry been performing uh, during COVID? Well, yeah, I mean, luckily I was able to kind of, you know, get some information in there at the end and, you know, kind of predict the future, which, you know, I kind of, I didn't know how long it was going to last, but it <laughs> seems like, you know, esports and gaming has really filled the void, especially initially as it was the only thing ESPN had for a while once they kind of went through you know, all their backlog. And, 
like you said, it definitely isn't as large as it could be because of, you know, you're missing live events, so you don't have all the excitement and the added revenue from that. But you're able to do online events, which keeps interesting, but it's not the same. You know, you have different issues with you know, whether it's IP or ping or latency and, you know, connection issues. And, you know, if the whole team isn't together and you have people different, you know, cities, states or countries, it's just not as smooth if you're all next to each other in the same place using the same internet. So while it's you're still able to kind of function, it's not the same level, which means there's just not the same level of interest. So it's just kind of, but what's nice about it is it really kind of confirmed Twitch and streaming and kind of this whole world that at the end of the day, this was still going on while it had to evolve a little. Most of it was already online to begin with. Everyone was watching the content online. You already were doing a lot of remote broadcasts anyway. So you didn't have to f- kind of reinvent the wheel as much as some of the more traditional sports had to. So, you know, it definitely was not as, you know, didn't hurt as much as a lot of the other avenues, like, you know, movies who just didn't have movies for I don't know how many months or years. Or like, you know, sporting events that it was months before they were live again and then before there were fans and then there was capacity limitations. So, you know, luckily esports was able to kind of be online, but, you know, inherently it was just limited in, you know, what the magnitude of what it could be. So to round off, I would love to hear from you. Uh, It's a young area when it comes to regulation. You mentioned, I believe, that the first kind of eSport event or the first one that's recognized in an eSport event was in 1972. So this is not a sport with the longest of track records, but government regulators are starting to become really interested in this area as well. You talked about how the FEC has stepped in when it comes to some social media posts and, you know, esport athletes needing to make clear if they are promoting a, you know, paid for advertised you know, product, things like that. Where do you think there is going to be more regulation in the future when it comes to esports? I mean, I think, you know, a nice trend that we've had to see is the establishment of these player associations who are trying to help. Um, I guess even the playing field a little bit between the players and the teams and the league organizers. And recently they actually negotiated a whole entire likeness, you know, deal for the players where they collectively bargained for their licensing rights, which, you know, I think is really interesting to see. And what's, you know, unique about esports and the structure is that there's no like one esports wide organization that's in charge of esports. You know, like every game, whether it's Call of Duty or Fortnite or Halo, or Dota 2, or CSGO, they have their own whole entire ecosystem of, you know, developers and organizers and teams that compete in it. And it's like, it's like its own league. So there's no true governing body for all of esports. So it's really hard to kind of collectively negotiate or make rules for everyone that's a competitive gamer. But you're starting to see different games have their own specific you know, kind of player unions for better or worse that are trying to help in that game, help players with that one title, whether it's new rules that are more advantageous to them or just, 
you know, certain breaks or certain, you know, contractual, you know, stipulations that don't make it so one-sided. So I think that we'll see more of this trend of, you know, players starting to understand their value and how they protect themselves better. And I think that's going to overall just change how it all operates. Well, I'll look forward to seeing how that all shakes out. Justin, thank you so much for appearing on this episode with to talk about your book, The Essential Guide to the Business and Law of Esports and Professional Video Gaming. Uh, if any of my listeners want to reach out or find out more about what you do or want to buy the book, is there any website you'd point them to? So yeah, you know, thank you so much for having me. And for everyone that wants to connect with me, definitely you know look me up on Twitter, Justin J E S Q, or go to jmjesq.com. It's my website, and you know there's links to buy the book on Amazon or through the publisher or Barnes and Noble or every you know major bookseller. So definitely go check it out. And thank you to my listeners for joining us for this episode. If you enjoyed it, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service. And if you have a book that you'd like me to consider hosting on a future episode, please email us at books at abajournal.com.